I was hard pressed to name it. It was an underlying syndrome of sorts that permeates my very being. It operates like a drone, a dull droning sound, always present, that most of the time is drowned out by my higher pitches of optimism and hope. I now know it to be black fatigue. This is the Inclusion Solution Live, the Winters Group podcast for all things diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice. My name is Mary Frances Winters, and I will be your host for this series where we will explore the many layers of Black fatigue. today of talking with Tammy Jackson. And Tammy, um, I'm so pleased that you could um, join us. You know about my project about your know, Black fatigue. And I tell everybody I, I started the project because of younger folks like you, millennials. I'm, I, we were just talking about age. I'm, I'm a baby boomer and millennials were saying to me, we're exhausted. <laughs> I mean, like, you're only 25 years old. How are you going to be exhausted already? <laughs> And they will give me the slide, a side eye and say, yes, we are exhausted. And so that's what really prompted me to write Black Fatigue, that the generations and generations of fighting for equity, Black people fighting for equity, and it's just not coming. Um, and we see now with the um, protests, what's going on. But I started writing the book even before that. Um, mm. I have a daughter who... Um, is on the cusp of being a millennial. And when I saw what was going on with her at work, I'm saying, you know, we're just passing all of this stuff down generation to generation and nothing has really changed. And so I want to uh, illuminate this. I want the book to help um, black people to be affirmed and to maybe think, oh, that's why I'm feeling like that, right? That's that black fatigue. And I want white people to recognize um, what, what it takes to live while Black, because apparently, based on what our clients are saying at the Winters Group, they didn't know that racism was so bad. And so when all of the, all of the uh, protests started, people said, oh, I'm so surprised. We weren't surprised. So anyway, as a guest on my show, I want you to help, um, I want you to tell your story your journey. Tell us about who Tammy Jackson is, what you do, what you're about, and then we're going to talk about how Black fatigue manifests for you. Welcome. So thank you so much, Mary Francis, for having me. I'm really excited, actually, because I've always wanted to have more dialogue in this element with between the generations, and not just millennials, but like generally all the generations that are actively working right now, which I believe we're up to five, right, if we include the greatest generation. Yes. So when we talk about those things and we have these tensions between particularly like the most notorious media potent <laughs> tension is between boomers and millennials. Right. Yes. And <laughs> I'm so glad to be here because I think that is part of one of my own personal legacies is to uh, one of my North stars, if you will, to use uh, black uh, diaspora terminology is to leave a place better than I found it or another young black woman or young, uh, another young black person to come behind me so they don't feel the things that I felt because the things that I felt weren't okay. And so 
and the things I experienced weren't okay. So it's about an actual experience and actual feelings. Uh, my journey started, uh, I'm one of those wonderful millennials who graduated right when the economy crashed, you know. Um, I'm, I'm definitely quintessential and I have a absorbent amount of student loan debt that has pretty much uh, stunted my economic and adult life growth, right? And um, in the most sens sensible words, it's been the hardest thing to overcome and that experience has shaped me greatly professionally. And so in certain aspects, I think back to myself, like what got me to this journey? And I was just talking to a friend last night and they were saying, we were just talking about all the things that I had been doing. And I'm like, wow, everything that I've done in the last almost 15 years has led up to this moment. And this moment to me is what I call myself and I, what I call myself professionally. So professionally by trade, I'm in the instructional design, learning and development field. But I also call myself a Jedi Knight, Justice, Equity, Diversity, Inclusion Knight. Um, and I look at you as a Jedi Master. So, you know, you are what I would say the Obi-Wan Kenobi to my Luke Skywalker. <laughs> I'm humble. I'm humble. <laughs> and when I say that, you know, that, that speaks a little bit about my personality. I'm a nerd. I'm a blurred. I'm a costumer. Um, if people see the the people will see the visuals, you know, my hair is, changes colors all the time. Currently, it's very, it's an emerald green. Um, I'm very big into fashion. I'm also a woman of size and stature. I'm a light-skinned black woman, cis-hetero, cis-het. I am six, two and a half, 375 pounds, and a dress size 24. So we talk about take up space. I literally embody what that means physically. And so I have had the pleasure of working in everything from sports and entertainment to advertising for uh, Black and Latinx markets. At the time, we were calling it Hispanic market, but now we've talked about it. So we see the journey changing all the way up into the tech roles. I have worked in um, all Black, Black spaces and all white spaces. And that has led me all the way to my journey now where I do instructional design and development work. So that's my story. Okay. Where did you, where did you get your, um, your training for that? Where did you, where'd you go to school? So I am a proud graduate of the University of Michigan. I graduated from UMG. Yeah, I'm a Wolverine. Um, <laughs> I am proud of that. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to hype Wolverine because I still owe them quite a bit of money. So, <laughs> And then I got my graduate training, and I'm actually repping them today in my outfit. I went to the University of Texas at Austin. So I did graduate. Um, my undergrad was... Um, everything adds up. My undergrad was in Asian languages and, and culture and American studies. So I did extensive studies in the Japanese language and the Asian culture, both Asian American and Asian, uh, the continental Asian culture. Mm -hmm. And then I moved right along and did uh, Black diasporic studies and critical race theory in grad school. <laughs> so I've been marrying all of my interests at heart. I had a teacher when I was in high school introduced me to Japanese and the opportunity, a black woman, a black woman, and I couldn't believe it. First person I'd ever seen who was black, who spoke any Asian language. And uh, she introduced me to the concepts. She introduced me to the opportunity to take the class and it changed my life. Yeah. You know, I, I talk about that um, in terms of having those people in your life that are able to ch change the tra trajectory of your life. I was telling a senior leader yesterday when they were talking about these are all white men. They're all research scientists, and they were talking about what they're going to do and what they can do to, you know, uh, ameliorate, um, you know, racism. And 
uh, I was talking with them about um, you know adopting you know adopting a school. I said there are twenty of you here, and twenty of you who are PhDs in research science. I said you know there are kids who don't even know what that what that means, or that there is a career that could be that. I didn't know what it was. Right, and yeah, and so I think for a lot of our um, black and brown kids, even be exposed like my, well, my son, I, and I talk about him, you know, all the time. I'm so proud of him. I'm proud of both my, my son and my daughter. My daughter works for the Winters Group. She's the chief operating officer. But Joe is a professor at Duke University, and uh, he his uh, degrees are from Harvard, Duke, and Princeton. He's now back at Duke in religious studies and critical race theory. Okay. But that, when he was 16, I, would, I was pushing him towards engineering, because, you know, during that time, you know, <laughs> Yeah, become an engineer. Yes, you gotta get a good job. Go be an engineer. Yeah. So he came back. He came back and he said, "Well, um, what, what, what's an engineer?" And so I thought about it. His dad was an accountant, and I'm, you know, do do this. I've been doing. This. I said, "Well, yeah. How would he even know, you know, what an engineer, you know, is or does?" And so, you know, your story is so poignant because you said you would probably have not even thought about Japanese, right? Never. Had this influence in, in, in your life. Not only that, but the, the influence, and shout out to Melody Cargill, amazing woman, the influence of seeing a black woman, she was also a size and stature, she was like 5'11", she was tall, and I just like had never seen anyone like this before in my life, and when I met her, people like were telling me like, go talk to Ms. Cargill. Um, she was a, now she's an administrator in that school district, um, but also there's a lot of, I'm a first generation as well, so my parents Oh, see right here. So my parents grew up in Detroit, Michigan. That's where I was born. Um, and they were um, one of multiple siblings. My mom is one of 13. My dad is one of 10. And they grew up poor. Like, that's what they, that's how it was. Like, they had, everybody was kind of chipping in. And so uh, my father and his three brothers got drafted to Vietnam War. My mom got married at a very early age and had my brother and raised him. And then subsequently being a single mother, they didn't have even like college wasn't even something that was even a accessible idea, an accessible idea for my parents. So they couldn't give me this. I didn't know what a PhD was. I didn't know what a PhD was or like what a doctorate was until I was my senior year at Michigan. And I, went, I remember meeting another black woman professor and be like, you have a PhD? And I had friends like, well, duh, she's a professor. And I didn't know, I couldn't make that. I didn't know what that meant. So that was like a very humbling, embarrassing moment for, you know, 21-year-old Tammy to not really understand that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and yeah, the worlds, the worlds can be so different between, you know, and I'm generalizing right now, but, but for many, for many of us, I'm first generation. My parents, have, both parents only had an eighth or ninth grade education, but, you know, they knew I was going to college. You know, I lived in, I grew up in a very small town, Niagara Falls, New York. And uh, all the people on the street, Mayor Francis, they call me Mayor, as Americans, they call me Mayor Francis, Mayor Francis, Mayor Francis going to college. Mayor Francis going to college. <laughs> now, I don't know anything about college, but everybody told, everybody said, that's what, that's what I was going to do. And yes, so, I had that, you know, so I did have that, you know, that really good influence. It's, it's sort of like, you're going to do better than, you know, the, the, the generation before, no, you know, no matter what. Um, so I think that that uh, is something that as I'm going to these, these organizations, mostly in white spaces, the kind of things that they take for granted, mm. they don't even think, you know, the dominant group just um, doesn't even have to think about, you know, um, don't have to think about, um, you know, you, you, the spaces that they can be in and not, you know, like, we, like you were saying, oh, you have a PhD? 
well, how would you know that, right? Um, but they would take something like that, of course, because that's a prerequisite. But how do we how do we know that? And so when we look at the educational disparities, you know, part of it is just not having access to um, what some of the um, what some of the opportunities are. I have a friend who there's a program called Fresh Air Kids. Have you ever heard of? It? Mm -mm. Oh, so Fresh Air. I don't even know if it's still around, but Fresh Air Kids. Um, would take kids out of, you know, out of the, the you know, used to call it a ghetto, right? Take them out of the ghetto, out of the hood, and uh, for the summer and have them live with a family in the summer. So my friend lived with this family uh, for the summer. And she told me this as an adult, she said, the way that family lived, she said, that's how I wanted to live. She said, the mother didn't work and she had a big house. And she said, and that's what I want. That's what she got. That's not what I wanted, but that's what she, she wanted that, and that's what she got, you know. Um, she, she always had big houses. She had a husband who worked. She has four daughters who are very well accomplished themselves, but she wouldn't have even been able to dream about that mm. if she hadn't had that kind of, you know, that kind of opportunity or that kind of experience. And so what we find, what, what I'm finding is that what causes, you know, Black fatigue is that some of these programs that have been, that have been helpful and have been useful they don't last, you know, they may last for, for, for 10 years. Um, research scientist was saying that to me yesterday. He said, well, you know, we, in the 90s, we did that. He said, we adopted a school. The resources for schools that, that, that educate uh, black, the public schools educate black and brown kids, as you probably well know, it's atrocious. They don't have computers. They don't have what they have. You know, Microsoft can give, kid, can, could give every child in the United States a computer. Easy, just do it, right? Um, so some of these inequities that we have, if we wanted to fix them, we could fix them. And that's part of what I would talk about in terms of the black fatigue. Why are we still here? You know, why, why do kids not have what they need? You know, we, we're seeing it now in the pandemic. As a matter of fact, I live in Charlotte and um, I'm, I'm getting ready to, to donate some computers. I've got to figure out how, how to do that. Um, but if that's, the, if that's the barrier, if you can't get online, you, you, know, you know what I'm saying? You're talking to, you're, you're really speaking my language. Now, granted, I'm a little older than the students now, but Mary Frances, I was in the 10th grade. So this would have been um, 2000. This would have been 2000, right? Mm -hmm. 2002. And my parents were working both full-time working class. And I remember uh, staying in the library the whole year before that into my 10th grade year, like until it closed, trying to like get my paper done because... Mm -hmm. All, that was when we were starting to transition and use the internet. Like, we were starting to transition into, like, using computers more. We didn't have a computer. My family couldn't afford that, right? And so I remember staying, like, I would get to school be at 5.30 in the morning and then be there all day and then stay all night to the point where I was having, like, 15-hour days as, a, as a, like, a 15-year-old, right? And it was starting to affect, you know, at that time, my grades significantly. So the irony that, like, the thing I'm trying to do to make my grades better, mm -hmm. it was causing me a detriment because I didn't have a resource. And so my father actually had to go out and get uh, a payday loan or something like that to just get me something to be in the house so I can work with. And, and I have, I mean, that's a, first of all, foremost, that's still a privilege because one, my father lived in the house with me, which at that time there were still two parents mm -hmm. and he had enough uh, financial equity, <laughs> if you will, to even yeah. qualify. To get the loan, right? So like there, that there even lies still my privileges, even in that moment of 
having uh, not having access to something right and so when you talk about like computers or access i mean i tell my mentees and i talk to my friends about this rarely do we become the things we cannot see rarely and rarely do we come and that's kind of like when i tell you my north star when i'm entering a space i have a very very particular goal when i go into any new endeavor did i leave it better than i found it did i contribute with all my heart those are the two questions i ask myself when i come into a new space whether that's a new job opportunity a new mentee whatever the case may be those are the questions i've been asking myself and that's what guides my work and passion right and I don't want to pass on some of the traumas <laughs> that I inherited from mm-hmm. my foremothers and my forefathers. And I know that a lot of that trauma was, in, was intended to be well-intentioned, but it still was traumatic. What was some, if you don't mind, would you like to share not something? All. Not at all. So I talked to you about my, I mentioned my size and stature and being a bigger woman and being tall and all that. And, um, one of the things, the, one of the first rules I learned, this is from black folks is make sure you don't sound black when you talk, right? Don't ever sound like you sound when you at the house. Mm-hmm. So the diphthongs, my enunciations, like I sound like a black woman stereotypically when I talk. And that was the thing that they were trying to get out of my system. Make sure I, t- and even like the register of my voice is deeper, which a lot of black women experience that. Exactly. And so they were, you know, talk up high and make sure your voice is high pitch and it's pleasant, it's airy and bubbly and light. Um, it was don't do anything to your hair, but straighten it. Right. So my natural hair, uh, probably a three C straighten it, straighten it, make sure like it, nothing is curly and there, don't you dare put no color in it ever. <laughs> right. Don't, don't wear makeup. Don't wear anything bold. Don't wear any like blacks and browns. And I get why they wanted us to do these things. And they told us don't be black. So anything, especially working class, because that was seen as lower. So anything that marked you as a black working class, and for some of my friends, poor, right? Person, make sure you never show that anywhere in your work, ever. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's just like, that's the neuroses behind that, the psychological like effects of that was traumatic. Yeah. So, so my, my mother would say to me, um, act your age, not your color. Wow, at your age, not your color. Oh, Lord. And then I'm telling, and I was like, and when we say that, then right. I'm basically reinforcing to, and I'm, and I'm talking to the next group of people coming through me, the Gen Zers. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm not doing that to them. I'm not going to t- give them in subtle ways that their blackness is a problem to be fixed because it's not. Yeah. Right. It's not. Because it's fatiguing, right? Fatiguing. <laughs> 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 went through and I was reading the book your you know the copy of your book and like the literal physicality and just the uh Dr. Tara who was on the last episode like the physical like detrimental process that happens like in your body is real my hair started falling out I started having issues with my digestive tract system I could not sleep I wasn't having I lost appetites I gained a lot of weight I lost like I remember crying every morning when I was waking up to go to work on the way to work, Mary Francis, like literal tears. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying to myself, this is, I'm 24. And I'm like, is this the rest of my life? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know if I can do this for the next 45, 50 years. And you were crying because? I was crying because I was so tired 
of putting on that mask and that armor every single day. And it became literally a weight. Our, my partner is active duty military. And um, when they go on ruck marches, they wear a kit. The kit is your armor, your helmet, your gear. And that kit can weigh anywhere from 40 to 80 pounds, depending on what you do and where you're going. It felt like doing that every single day and that who I really was, was only going to hurt me. And I was crying because I knew that I could not, I could like every day, I could not continue to do this charade, if you will, it felt like a charade. Mm -hmm. And it felt the, it felt humiliating. Mm -hmm. So that was my experience um, in the corporate world. Um, I cried every day. Oh my God. Um, you know, so this was some 30 years ago now. Uh, but I, and that's why I started my own business because I said, there's gotta be something better. And if I'm going to fail in life, it's not gonna be because some um, white man is telling me you're too aggressive or you're not aggressive enough or straighten your hair. I was wearing a short Afro at the time and came in my office. He wasn't even my boss, he was a colleague. And he said, will your hair grow? And I looked at him and I said, yeah. He said, well, you ought to let it. Mm. And so, yes. Yeah, so, Dad didn't just even think that he, it was cool to say that to you in the first place. Yeah, he walked out. Yeah, I, I didn't let my hair grow. but Or maybe I did at that time. I don't know. You know, you go through, I go through, you go through a lot of different hairstyles. So, but, but, the, but my point is, is that these, these similar, you know, you're, um, you know, you're two generations younger than I am. I am. And you had the same experience having some of the same experiences. And so that's why I wrote Black Fatigue because it's intergenerational fatigue. We okay. have to fix it. When, when we do our sessions at the Winters Group and people want to know, well, wh why, why are people protesting? Um, and this generation is saying, you know, enough is enough. I'm so proud of them. <laughs> I'm so proud of them. I'm so proud of my, that generation is my nephews, right? Mm -hmm. That generation's behind me. They're the new work, the workforce that's coming in. I, I tell them, I say, I feel like a proud auntie. Um, I'm not a parent and that's, you know, I'm, I've chosen not to be a parent, mm -hmm. but I have invested. My role in my community is to be, you know, an asset to the next generation in this way. Mm -hmm. And in that way, I made it to, I'm not going to tell another black or brown kid to diminish themselves ever. I'm not going to do it. That was my, that was my goal. I want you to have, I want you to be able to see me in the office and be like, oh my God. She exists. And whatever you are, it makes space for you just because I'm existing. Yeah. And, and you know, we talk about this uh, inclusion stuff and belonging, you know, in, in organizations. And um, it's still a matter of, and I think, I think when, when, when we do this, when in mass we do what you're saying to do, we will then have belonging, we will then have inclusion. Because for generations, even though they use those words, belonging and inclusion really mean assimilation. That's exactly what it means. And when we get into the D and I work and we do this because we're even right now, that I always say the diverse the diversity part, that's the easy catch for folks. I say that just, too. Just add color, just add right. water, we straight, let's rock and roll, we good. Right. But the, but the assimilation is like the, the the really like the inclusion is just like let's everybody be the same. Right. And it's like, oh, you really don't want, you just want to make, to throw a few brown faces on your website. You want to make, make, ask them how they're feeling about the moment right now in a group meeting in front of all their coworkers. 
and then say you're going to have, um, you know, a Hispanic Heritage Month and a Black History Month, you know, newsletter. Okay, we're done. And you're gonna give Juneteenth now. Now they're gonna give Juneteenth. Now we get, and we get Juneteenth off for the first time ever. And I'm just like, oh. And but you don't want to. Are you black people happy now? <laughs> are you good? You good, right? We straight. We good. <laughs> we don't want to hear. So like when we're when we're trying to get institutional changes up the chain of chain of command for like a better word up the chain. Well, we don't want to isolate any of our people from we, when we, when you stand by one group you actually isolate the other group and we're not a political organization we're apolitical or whatever the case may be and what happens in that moment you don't realize when you serve when we are serving and acknowledging the injustices and equities of the least served everybody eats literally like it it, it affects and helps everybody Wherever you mark on your privileges and your inequalities, it will serve you. But if you're going to act like we're all the same and we're just going to put us in a pot like gumbo and just give us a, 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 a day off for Juneteenth, then we're not going to make any progress. So, so where, where, are you, where are you doing your instructional designing now? I'm currently at Keller Williams. Okay. Oh, okay. The, um, real estate. Yeah. Yeah. It's, actually kind of, it's actually kind of dope because I and two others have been honored <laughs> with the work of being the inaugural leads on the first ever DEI strategic plan for the organization. Oh. The organization is 36 years old. That's the right. first time. Oh, is it only 36 years old? It's only 36. Oh. Yeah, maybe, maybe she's turned 37, but you know. Okay. Um, That's how old this company, the Winters Group, is 36 years old. Okay, so maybe 37, because y'all are 84, right? 84, right. You're 83. Okay. So that's a really exciting thing. And mm -hmm. we were very, very adamant to do that work with an anti-Black racism lens as the foundation. We were adamant. Mm -hmm. And just getting that piece sold was a challenge. Um, fatiguing, right? It's fatiguing. <laughs> So I will say I'm very fortunate because in the L&D community, I do believe the learning and development, learning design community, the team that I'm on, and I was just telling my bosses the other day, I'm very fortunate to be on the probably the, the team that has the most EQ in the whole company mm. because of what we do. You know, usually we're ex-educators, we're, you know, we've been, we were teachers, we were, you know, in the higher eds, like the majority of my team in some capacity has this large amount of EQ. And so our director has made, and I was, when I, when I joined the team, I made it very clear that DE and I work was important to me and I wanted to see some changes in our curriculum based on this. And they, since probably since after June, right. Um, it's been very deliberately and we were keeping track and we're checking in and we're still doing this work. So little bitty changes in how we use language in our work or making sure that we're now talking about how we uh, address people's humanity and capitalizing the being black or using the X and Latin X. Like we're doing these style guide changes. We're doing these curriculum changes. How do we have more black SMEs, uh, subject matter experts as instructors and guides and other non-black uh, people of color. Those are things that I'm proud that we're working on, but we're only 16 people, right? Um, and we only have so much uh, collective capital <laughs> to, you know, sustain the changes as you were saying earlier. And, and you're doing this in addition to 
Yes. Yes. And do, in addition to serving on the DEI as a lead on the right. DEI components, and there's six of us and there's six committees. So each person, each three of mm -hmm. us have two committees that we chair over, we lead. Right. And I literally had to have a sit down with my manager. This was um, in June when our company gave the announcement that, you know, what most companies was doing at the time, mm -hmm. Black Lives, you know, and Mary friends, I'll be frank, I had questions. I had questions. I wasn't pleased with how we were handling it. And it just felt like a Band-Aid on a broken bone. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to know what Black-led organizations are we financing and putting our money where our mouth is? How are we going to make sure that this is not only the responsibility of the less than 15 employees, that Black employees that you have? Mm -hmm. How are we going to know that when people speak up like, we're not going to get fired? This is a conversation I'm having between the president of our company and front of the whole company. It's not, it's, what did the Lovecraft Country episode in episode three said? Trailblazing is dangerous. Mm -hmm. Like there's fear in having to speak up, but I knew that I could not just ask these questions. And how are we going to make sure that we maintain this over a course of time? Do I have, do we have your buy-in? Do I have access to you, Mr. Mm -hmm. President, or do I have to go through HR? Do I have access to you, VP of learning? Or do like, what, what does that mean in the grand scheme of things? And um, no, this is not paid work, Mary Frances. <laughs> and the, the, the extra burden, right? The wear and tear. So, so you know, we always, we, you know, we always we have to be twice as good to get half as far, Black people. That, that's the saying, right? We, we all know that. But we don't only have to be twice as good in our discipline, but we also are often tapped to do those extra things that have to do with helping black people to get equity. Mm -hmm. So it's not the white people who are doing it, it's the black people. I, I have a, a little a part in my book called uh, Be on Every Diversity Committee Fatigue, right? <laughs> <laughs> and, it's, and I struggle, and I'll be honest with you, I struggle because before the three of us were like on this charge, we were on that charge starting in August of 2019. We couldn't even get in front of anybody with it, like any leadership before June of 2020. Right. So, so you, started, you started in 2019, but nobody was really interested to hear you then, right? Is that what you're no, saying? No, no, yes, exactly. Like, and I, I expressed that to the leadership once they, they started tapping us when, you know, mm -hmm. Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, were killed, mm -hmm. right? Because it was... I was experiencing fatigue before June of 2020. Exactly. Yeah. I was, this was just something that all of a sudden happened overnight. And all of a sudden, I remember being very clear um, months before this happened with another black death to my boss who I get, a, she's, she's been so supportive, but we had that conversation in our interview process. And I talked to her about these things out the gate. And I told her at the time, I said, you know what? I'm, I need to be off the meetings today. Here's where my projects stand. Here's an update of where I'm at. I'm going to be working, but if you can just, I'm not going to be on camera. I don't have energy. And that's the conversation that, that strategic vulnerability that I have to practice in order to have the person who's in charge of managing me, give me as much air cover as possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That has, this is the first, this is only the second time in my entire career that I've had this type of support. Mm -hmm. um, because it's always taught that it was taboo to talk about anything like this, right? And I just made a decision in 2016 that I wasn't going to do it anymore. And then my life changed. Right. And, you know, hopefully now this is a, a, a movement and not just a moment. And um, Black people feel 
like they have the permission now to be real, to be authentic, because the organizations talk all the time about vulnerability and authenticity. Um, however, um, you know, and I think even white people probably are not totally authentic in the workplace. So we need to be real about that. But for us, um, we, we have to be on guard. We have to be careful of um, how we, as you were saying, how we say things or how far we go, you know, in saying things because you know, that stereotype could come in where, oh, you know, Tammy's just, Tammy's just, you know, she's one of those lazy black people, you know, she needs some extra time, right? I mean, that's what could be interpreted. Not that, no, you know, Tammy is given this and this plus, mm -hmm. and every single day she's seeing images of people who look like her being killed in the street. And it's fatiguing and it's stressful and she needs some time. Mm -hmm. And so when you, white people may not get that, and that's what happens in these organizations. And so many black people just don't, don't, let me, let me just not talk about it. Let me just, let me just exist. Let me just, let me just uh, do what I have to do. But that's again, stressful in and of itself. Because mm. a lot of time, if you have a job, you spend a lot of time at work and not to be able to, to let that out. I saw an article just recently, I wanted to ask you your take on it because it, and I have to go back and find it, but it's basically said that because we're in the pandemic, um, this sense of belonging is even, you know, less because people are all on Zoom all the time mm -hmm. and that it's even worse for Black people because they have uh, less of a sense of belonging now. Um, that, you know, they had a better sense of belonging when they were at work. And I, was mm. and I said, um, I don't buy that. I don't buy that. I said, I don't buy that either because I don't know that we get our sense. And again, I'm stereotyping, but I don't know by and large if Black people get or, or need a sense of belonging. You know, a lot of white people have a best friend at work and that's even the Gallup Q12, they do the, the Q12 um, employee satisfaction survey that the Gallup organization does. One of, the, one of the key indicators of being satisfied at work is that you have a best friend at work. Mm. I, was, I, I don't know that I need to have a best friend at work. That's so interesting because I was taught, and this is, I struggle with this because I've seen it both ways. I was taught, from my foremothers and forefathers, you go in there, you do your job, you go home, you leave. You don't talk about anything about your life. But then um, I was talking, it was an article written by a black woman who's a black introvert. I'm an extrovert, she's an introvert. And she was saying, well, I go in, I don't make any causes, I don't talk about myself. And then I'm seen as not a team player, team right? Player. And I'm not a team player. And then I thought like, I need to write something about being a black female extrovert because I go in, I. I engage, I'm on committees, I do this, and then I'm too much. And I'm just, <laughs> I make people uncomfortable, you know? And the only way that has been remotely successful is I built what I call my A team and my B team, but I did that intentionally out the gate from the start of my interviews. And I allowed that the, I had a, a white male boss and now a white female boss, um, make their decisions about how they felt about this before I was even brought on the team. Mm. Mm. And I did that strategically and I did that intentionally and I did it with purpose. That is a really good tip. <laughs> Highlight that for the, for the, so, so I call the, I call the B team, the belonging team and mm -hmm. the belonging team are going to be the people who's going to be, um, it's a more level interaction. So the belonging team is going to be quote unquote, your work bestie or your work wife or husband or whatever. They're going to be that one person in finance who always helps you when your when your charts are bad. Like they, they're going to be a person who's in another department 
who can like have your back and talk about your work ethic. They might be a person where you might go to one happy hour. A, these are, this could be all different people. They're not the same person. And you know, more social engagement, but they can, they can vouch for your work ethic, right? Mm -hmm. Because they've spent some interpersonal time with you. And then the A team are including of external and internal advocates and mentors who have social capital in the organization and in your industry. And so when I went in to Keller Williams, I made it a very intentional practice to make sure that I started recruiting from the moment I was recruiting for my A and B team. And I call the A team your air cover team. So A team is A for air cover mm -hmm. because I found, and there was an article written about this that I found fascinating. And I had a black woman mentor in Detroit tell me this before I moved to Texas. She says, when you get in that corporate space out there, you find yourself a white male mentor or a sponsor. And I was, I couldn't, I was, I was 24 when she said that. I'm like, what? Why? <laughs> and she knew, you know, at that time she was in her late fifties and she's like, I'm telling you, if they vouch into you, you're going to have an easier time. Now, granted, there's still schematics and, you know, there's still blackness and there's all sorts of privileges that I embody that make it a lot easier for me. But what I'm saying is, if nothing else, when you go on that interview, let's talk about race. Let's talk about DEI work. Let's talk about how, I sh how being a black woman of size and stature informs who I am and informs the work that I do. And you get the best work quality out of me when, that, when those things are in harmony and in tandem, not when they're disappearing. Talk about that right in the interview. Right in the interview. Yeah. Right in the interview. That, that is such, um, you know, that, that's, uh, I learned something every day and, and I've learned something from you because that is really, um, you know, it, it shows a level of maturity. It shows a level of um, self-confidence. Uh, self um, and, you know, and I think that's really key, right? We have to know who we are. We really have to know who we are and, and really be okay with it. Because when you get in these white spaces, if you're not, if you're not already okay with who you are, you're going to be susceptible. You're going to be open and unprotected. Mm. And you're going to look up. And I was taught, you get in there, you just get the job first, and then you switch it up. Then you get your cornrows. Then you get your, your goddess locks. Then you do your hair. I was taught that. But what I was finding is that was actually jarring to many white people because mm -hmm. they're like, well, who was the person? And mm -hmm. I didn't want them to buy into anything but Tammy. My voice is loud. It carries. I sound like I'm Black. I am Black, whatever that means. I wear bright colors and bold prints. Um, I, and I want to talk to you about race. If you, I asked him, have you ever managed a black woman before? Straight mm -hmm. up. I asked him that question. And then I asked people on their team, what is their management style? What is their strengths? And I asked them, what is your weaknesses? What, where are some of your blind spots when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion? And I say that to them in the beginning stages. So, so this, you got an answer. Um, you know, have you ever managed a black woman before? What have you got an answer? Well, I don't see race. Okay. What if that's the candidate? That's the, that's the candidate, Rand. That's the easy answer. That's usually my typical answer. Right. <laughs> that's the typical answer. And I say, I said, and I asked them, well, tell me more about that. What do you mean? What do you, what do you mean when you don't see color? Tell me more about that. Mm -hmm. And that allows them to give me some feedback where they're coming from. And then I can pinpoint why it's important for this particular potential hire to see mm -hmm. race. And because a lot of what I'm finding in the work that I've done, even when I consulted different members of my organization or they've asked me questions, there's been a lot of straight cishet white men who'll come to me and say, hey, I don't know what this is. What do you like? Give me some feedback. Or, and I say to them, I'm like, when you, I know why you were taught that. If we just look at the last 50 years of what the, what the country's gone through historically, I know why you were taught that. You don't want to be seen as someone who makes 
uh, bad marks on race because you believe in meritocracy and bootstrapping. And I understand why that is. But what happens when you say you don't see race, you discount an entire segment of humanity and, and lived experience that informed that person's life that may not inform yours. And this can happen in race, this can happen in gender, but we usually only see it when we come to race and particularly blackness because black and race are like the ickiest part of that spectrum. <laughs> the most scary part. And I say, I want you to see me and being black informs me. And informs, and also as a manager, I mean, me and my current manager, she was great, but I put her through some, some, uh, some questioning mm -hmm. and I told, I was, it was an internal hire. And I said, it's going to take you a long time to get me on this team. And she's like, I don't believe that. She's like, we've seen your work. We, we, we've already, like, I've been in the organization for, a while. I was like, it's going to take you a while. And when you get to, when you, when you get to that point where you're going to have to um, defend the position for the hire, you're going to get pushback. And so here's what that's going to look like right? Mm -hmm. And usually it's going to come out in some subtle words. I just coached her. It's going to come out my professionalism, assume professional or not professional. It's going to come out in raw or in untalented or assumptions about my abilities and capabilities. And it's going to come out in comfort level of how other people feel around me. And if that, if I can do my job and make people comfortable. And lo and behold, she came back. She's like, it took me so much It took her a lot to convince to, to convince them that you should be on that to be on that team because of those things that people were going to say, right? But I knew that because I mean it was this one my first rodeo and I was just like let me just coach you. So I I teach my managers how to manage me in the interview stages, and if that's not something that they're comfortable with, then we at this age where I'm at right now at 35 years old, that's not a great space for me to be in, and that's not going to be fun for you either. But if you're really like it all it allows me to expose and make a very um, educated decision, informed consent, as I say, the medical in industry about what I'm going to be doing. And, and you know what's so beautiful about what you're saying, uh, Tammy, is that if in this interview process, um, the uh, organization is not, uh, quote, ready for you, then that's not the right organization for you to be in. That's so not the right so yeah, and and I think people say yeah, but I need that job. You know what? Oh, that's hard, and I and I I relate to that. That's hard. That's hard. What I did say, and in, in I've been in that situation before. And I what I will say to, and I've told a few black women this just in some shared spaces. I say, sis, I understand. And if you gotta get a job, get that job, get it on your resume, get in the door, and you use that as a stability marker, mm -hmm. and you you are making an exit strategy from day one. Right. Yeah. And you use that as ability to find the job mm -hmm. in which you want to be in. Because you still know who you are and you, you know, still know who you are. Yeah. And there's luxuries. There's luxuries and privileges about being in a position where I'm currently employed and being able to say this to other mm -hmm. people. There's also light skin privilege. People are going to be more palatable to my voice than if my skin was darker, particularly as a woman. Well, so you as men, as men too. So I have a couple of studies in my book in, in Black Fatigue. That, um, that have been done that show um, dark-skinned black men make X amount less than light-skinned um, dark men. I don't know what it is, but it's substantial. It is, it is substantial. substantial. Yeah. It's substantial. And if yeah. that's going to be the work I'm doing, and I say this to anybody, whatever work, if you are in the Jedi space, if you're in the DEI space, if you're doing this type of work, 
you have to constantly do inventory of your privileges constantly because things are going to change, they're going to shift just so you know how you can best show up. If I know that as a light-skinned person, people are going to be more susceptible to hearing my voice, it's a perfect time to somebody who's, who's darker skinned to piggyback off of me when I open the door. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, colorism is real. Colorism, colorism is real, real. Is real, real, right? <laughs> yeah, it absolutely and, is real, real. So what would you say, uh, so it seems to me like, part, like one way that you have, um, that you have mitigated or alleviated your black fatigue is by being real, is by not compromising who, who you are. That, that's, how you, that's how you address it. That's the number one. I would say that's the number one. That and boundaries and know my boundaries, mm-hmm. mitigating it out the gate and being 100% real and honest. But being 100% honest, Mary Francis, requires internal work that I have to do, right? I can't coach a future manager or ask certain questions if I don't know what it is I need to have be the most successful in that role based on my identity, not mm-hmm. my accomplishments, not my master's and bachelor's from these prestigious universities. What do I need as a black woman who identifies in this way to be successful in this role at this place? And I can't answer that unless I do some serious grounding in internal work. Internal work, yeah, it really is. And I think for some of us, we're afraid of that internal work because of the trauma we've had. So we don't want to, we don't want to go there. We don't want to, we don't want to go deep. Uh, because for some people, I think it's just really painful. And honestly, uh, I was reading another article that uh, and a psychiatrist said that some, they were even studies that the trauma of doing the work is actually harder than having lived the trauma, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that, tore, that blew me on my feet, Mary Frances. I was like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So talk, talk about fatigue on top of fatigue. <laughs> also, I have a I have a really great girlfriend. Shout out to Karis Adams. I hope you hear my voice. She tells me, remember what you know. Mm. And that has been so helpful for me, my fatigue. And the mm. second thing was ask for what you need and remember what you know. And sometimes that means that I have to look up. Oh, it's 530. I got to get off. That means, you know what, that person says something smart to me, I'm going to not respond right now, but I'll respond to them strategically on a, at another time. Right. You know, it's saying, you know what, I really love the, the social committee, but I can't host the game show right now. Right? <laughs> Whatever that looks like. Right? <laughs> yeah, those, are the, those are the boundaries, right? And being okay with the boundaries because I, I know in, in my career all this time, so when I left um, the corporate world, it was like, I'm not going to fail because they said I would. Somebody in the corporate said, don't let her go. She'll be back. She's not going to be able to make it. And so this, and sometimes it's so deeply entrenched that it just becomes unconscious that you have to keep working hard. You have to, you have to be a credit to your race. You have to, you know, you have to do that extra. You have to keep going. And that rest, you know, um, my team, my, my young millennial team was teaching me about rest. Yes, we got to get you. We got to get you hip to this rest, Mary Francis. <laughs> I know, right? Rest is resistance. I'm like, oh. rest is resistance. The Nap Ministry. Look at the Nap Ministry on Instagram. Rest I, is resistance. I, 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 actually, I write about the Nap Ministry in my book. It's yeah, in <laughs> it's in there. It's in there. Yeah. 
as, as I was learning about it, yes. Yeah, so, so the idea of, of that, though, it, it is something that um, I think it takes, um, we have to be okay with it. We have to learn that that's what we need because we live in a racialized society that devalues people who look like us and just living every single day takes extra. Also, we have to unlearn the modification of our bodies and the work to your dead mentality or the hustle to your dead mentality as we call it back home, like I'll sleep when I'm dead. We have to unlearn that our hustle, quote unquote, can hurt us. It can, and that uh, was a very hard reckoning for me to come to because I was taught to hustle and grind and just until, until I was dust. Yeah, exactly. That's how I was taught, right? So I got to give a lot of shout out to the, the Gen Zers behind me because they the ones like, Miss Tammy, uh-uh, you got to, you got to take that. No, Miss Tammy, stop it. And I love the fact that they're looking out for me just as much as I'm looking out for them, right? Absolutely. Well, Tammy, thank you so very much. Like I said, I've learned so much and I've learned so much from you um, today. I think what oh. we learned is that um, you know, black fatigue um, can be uh, eradicated. Uh, we don't have to live um, with that fatigue, that we can find those ways that um, work for each of us. And everybody's going to be different. So I, I know that everybody's not going to be able to interview their uh, their next employer like Tammy does mm -hmm. and uh, and uh, ask them um, how they um, how they manage black, a black woman a black man you know whoever it might be everybody's not gonna be able to do that but find what you're gonna what find what what it is for you find, yeah, what, is, what does that look like for you what does it look like for you to be able to take that mask off be your authentic self be okay with being your authentic self because that's when we're going to be able to um, eradicate black fatigue. So I thank you so much for your time. I thank you so much for who you are. Oh, thank you kindly, Mary Francis. Thank you for leading this charge for as long as you have. Like I said, you are the Obi-Wan to my Luke Skywalker. I've been following your work for quite some time. It is an honor to sit here and have a good old kiki with you about black <laughs> fatigue. And I feel so seen and heard. <laughs> And it's, I, I, this is the work I've, uh, I'm passionate about. This is my life's calling. So if I can be of service to this conversation, it is an honor. Oh, well, thank you so much. Be well, stay healthy, uh, and I'm sure we will be in touch. <laughs> All right. Have a good one.